Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, go to our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 15th of July 2019 and this is episode 122. On today's programme, Marietta Crichton-Stewart talks about Percy Shuttlewood, who she describes as the Welsh Walter Mitty. Shuttlewood served in her father's battalion during the Great War, and she describes his rather interesting career during the war and after it. I spoke to Marietta from her home in London. Marietta, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and whether you have any uh, family connections with the conflict? Uh, Well, hello, Tom. Yes, I've always been interested in history. I had a history degree many moons ago, but was in medieval history. But my grandfather was killed in the First World War, and I subsequently discovered that my grandmother's four first cousins were also killed in the Great War. And then I visited my grandfather's grave on the Western Front, and I thought, well, I must just find out a bit more about this. And as you'll know, the bug absolutely bit me. And now um, I like to think I know a fair amount about the Great War. And my interest is the people. And that's really where I stumbled across the character who features in today's podcast. Now, we're going to talk about a person you describe as the Welsh Walter Mitty. Obviously, that's based on, on the character Walter Mitty. For the sake of me and the audience, who was Walter Mitty and what was his fictional portrayal? Well, Walter Mitty is, as you say, a fictional character who appears in a short story written in 1939 by the American author and humorist James Thurber. The story was entitled The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. It was loosely based on a friend of Thurber's who was called Walter Mittoff, who was a daydreamer. It was then made into a film in 1947 with Danny Kaye, and more recently it was remade in 2013 with Ben Stiller. The name has been seized upon and is now used to describe a person who fantasises about a life which is much more exciting and glamorous than their own. And I looked up on Google and discovered the American Heritage Dictionary defines Walter Mitty as an ordinary, often ineffectual person who indulges in fantastic daydreams of personal triumphs. And I also found that in Britain, apparently individuals who impersonate either serving or retired members of the armed forces are sometimes known as Waltz after Walter Mitty. And the character of our talk is Welsh, and so I just came across the title, The Welsh Walter Mitty. So who was the Welsh Walter Mitty? Well, his real name was Percy Shuttlewood. And when you do any kind of research, it's such a gift to have someone either with a very long name or with a very unusual name. So I first stumbled across him as a young second lieutenant in 1914, when he was serving in the 6th Battalion of the Welsh Regiment, which my grandfather was commanding. And then while I was doing some completely different research, I had a eureka moment when I came across someone with exactly the same name, 
but in a juicy divorce case in 1918. So I did a bit more digging and found that they were uh, one and the same person. And very happily, Percy Shuttlewood had a very bulging file in the National Archives in Kew. So tell us about Percy Shuttleworth and his early life. Well, he was born in Swansea in 1891, and his father was a journalist on the South Wales Daily News, and was also the official shorthand writer to the Swansea Bankruptcy Court. And bankruptcy is something which features in the Shuttlewood history. His mother comes from a theatrical background. Various members of the family trod the boards, and in fact, Percy's grandfather, when he got married, um, on the marriage certificate, under occupation, he had put comedian. So he studies in Swansea, and then his particular interest is art. He studies in Swansea and in Rome, and then he gives um, talks about um, art, and he dabbles in journalism. And um, you, throughout his story, there are little sort of mitty moments, and you think, oh, is this true or not? But reportedly, in 1914, he was preparing a paper for the imperial Japanese government. So what did he do as a career before the war? Well, I think probably a bit of freelance journalism, possibly some artwork, but none of this was going to be terribly lucrative, though I suspect his father was probably um, endlessly trying to get him sort of casual work on newspapers. So we know that at the outbreak of war, he was supposedly lecturing somewhere on the continent and then he returns to Britain to enlist. So his background doesn't sound very much like the sort of typical um, one you get in terms of to get a commission in, in 1914 in a public school uh, with the right accent and, and the right connections. Is there, is there any truth in that, or did he, did he actually have that sort of um, required background? Well, I think his father was one of the stalwarts um, in Swansea, and he was Percy Jr. was clearly very well educated and of course you know in the early days of the war there was great enthusiasm and, and the 6th Welsh is a territorial battalion and so they will need to have been brought up to strength in terms of both men and officers. I can't find any record of Percy having been a pre-war territorial and it doesn't really sound like him anyway. However for whatever reason, by the 1st of September, he was gazetted as a second lieutenant in the 6th Welsh, which by then was commanded my gra by my grandfather, who was the local MP. And my grandfather had been a former regular soldier, so he didn't know what he was doing. So 1914 comes. Tell us what Percy gets up to in the war. Initially, the 6th Welsh are guarding the docks down at, Swinsa, uh, down at Swansea, but um, various strings were being pulled, and they set off for France on the 29th of October 1914, and were actually the first Welsh territorial battalion to go overseas. But to start with, they were on lines of communication in North France, so they're loading and unloading trains, carrying the wounded, escorting prisoners. I got my first glimpse of Percy in northern France when the battalion formed a guard of honour when the coffin of Field Marshal Lord Roberts was loaded onto a ship to be returned to Britain. 
Um, the event was actually witnessed by Queen Mary's private secretary, who um, summoned Percy to his hotel and uh, gave him a supply of cigarettes for um, the men. However, all the people were really desperate to get to the trenches, so they go off for a bit of training. And in July 1915, they arrive in Lochra, which is about six miles from Ypres. And for those who like the details, they were in the 28th Division, 84th Brigade. And they were stationed quite close to what is now the crater at Spanbrook Molen. So it's trench warfare with the Germans inevitably on the high ground. But very much their work was that of a pioneer battalion, which means you're um, repairing and cleaning trenches and to a certain extent doing some of the dirty work. So we know that in July 1915, Percy had home leave for about a week. And then on the 1st of September, he's back in Belgium and he's wounded on the arm and leg when a shell hits him whilst he was in a communication trench. The local newspaper down in South Wales has a very vivid account, which I suspect Percy may have given him some of the details, about his left arm being smashed in two by a Jack Johnson's shell, and it was kind of his arm was sort of hanging off. His uniform was ripped off by explosions, and his foot was fractured. Um, he's taken off to hospital in Latouke, which at that stage was based in the casino at Latouke, uh, but he was not to lose his arm, and he's then taken back to Dover, where and he's then in hospital for a considerable period. So his recuperation is really very slow. Now, one could almost say, fortunately for him, he's uh, back in Britain. Meanwhile, the rest of the battalion goes up to fight in the Battle of Loos and is virtually decimated in the attack on the Hohenzollern Redoubt on the 2nd of October that year. So in July the following year, 1916, Percy's convalescing, and it's not quite clear how, but he comes to the attention of military intelligence due to his suspicious conduct. However, this is put down to shell shock. And then, and I gleaned all of this information from his very full file at Kew, um, there were further inquiries made by military intelligence in October 1916. And his record says he's always been regarded as rather an eccentric young man and his mother was very eccentric. And by September 1917, he's ruled as unfit for any military service and he's discharged and he had in the meantime been given the rank of lieutenant and so on his discharge he's granted the honorary rank of, rank of lieutenant but there are some spasmodic uh, spasmodic mitty signs because he is proactively contacting military intelligence so he's got information about alleged german spies in manchester uh, this was investigated and found to be worthless. He then wrote articles in, in the press about German spies, but he uses the pen name Percy de Roos. And then he seems to have worked in the Ministry of Food and the Home Office. And he then starts claiming the rank of captain, uh, but he's told he can't have that because he was never a captain. 
So he applies for the Silver War Badge, which is a badge you can wear that indicates you've been invalided out of the services. He gives an address in the New Forest, and it turns out that this was the country home of the Earl and Countess of Kilconnell. Um, all soldiers, as you know, have a medal index card, and his has got absolutely loads of addresses on it, including one in Mayfair. And it was this flat in Mayfair that was to feature in a sensational divorce case in 1918 when the Earl of Kilconnell cites Percy as a co-respondence in a divorce. Percy is alleged to have committed frequent adultery, and I had a great time looking at the newspapers of the day. They had found incriminating letters in the flat where Lady Kilconnell seems to go by the um, nickname of Kitten. It was pointed out this is not a nickname that her husband ever used for her. And the divorce is granted, and Percy has to pay £67, four shillings and sixpence in cost. Lady Kilconnell... Um, subsequently marries a Viscount about three years later. Percy continues to feed stories to military intelligence, and his file in the National Archives indicate that some people thought he was a spy, but the consensus was it, it was probably the outcome of shell shock on a naturally eccentric mind. Um, he was also thinking about a career in politics, um, but then in the family tradition, in November 1919, he's declared bankrupt, and um, then he's on the move. So I next spot him arriving in Belgrade in Serbia, where he says that he's a temporary captain, and he applies to join the Serbian army. So the Serbian attaché has to contact um, military uh, authorities to just to check on what Percy says his service record was. Military intelligence is on his case as well because they're concerned that he's swanning around Europe in a British uniform saying that he's the director of Serbian intelligence. He's apparently very indiscreet. Um, he's offering to obtain Serbian and Russian decorations for people that he can obtain passports in and out of Yugoslavia. He's dropping the names of officers, British officers that he's going to break. He's then next sighted in Croatia, where he borrows money from an official in the Austrian Foreign Office. Then there's an allegation that he disappeared with someone's portmanteau. So certainly shortage of money is a constant feature in the Percy story. MI3 was... Um, very concerned about Percy in his British uniform and his ability to damage British interest. Um, on his file was a note saying, Percy Shuttlewood does not seem to be a very desirable person to be wandering around Europe. And there's quite a lot of war correspondence, as, war office correspondence as to what you could do to try and um, deal with this. You know, could they seize his passport? Could they have him deported to Britain. But clearly things didn't quite go Percy's way in the Balkans. And so there's a very complicated story about how he departs from the Balkans in the 1920s. Um, 
he apparently arrives in Italy on a French battleship. Um, the, the Italians may have been trying to impound his passport. He says he's working for MI6, that he's trying to sell information to the French or the Italians, and also that he wanted to go to Poland. And I think the British authorities became very exasperated. And so the passport office in Rome gives him an emergency passport, escorts him to the French border, and then instructs him to travel direct to England. So Percy's version is that when he arrives in Southampton, he's absolutely penniless. He doesn't even have enough money to send a telegram to his family, and that he walks to London. So having arrived in London, he very quickly asks to see an officer in military intelligence, and he continues busily dropping names. He says his father's in a senior position in the Board of Trade, um, but intelligence's uh, reports indicate that Percy's probably living in a church army hostel and is almost destitute, that he does pass on information, but this is found to be valueless. And I found a lovely little quote, he appears to be a person of unbalanced mind, but well worth watching. It's not clear what the object of his visit to the war office was. He never definitely asked for employment, though he appears to be pretty well on his uppers. Um, Percy was also um, showing a copy of a 1914 Mon Star, which has his name on it. However, it has the wrong battalion on it. So um, he's a bit of a man of mystery, but he clearly has a great capacity to pick up snippets of information because he was uh, passing on details on Bosnian secret societies, trade unions, a Croatian Bolshevik, something about German censored telegrams and an German industrialist. Um, and I was interested to find that as a result of Percy parading around Europe in his military um, uniform action was later taken by the War Office to prevent um, future cases of this happening. So that that's what Percy was doing um, during the war. So what exactly, so how long does all this go on for? Well, probably until the early 1920s. And I suspect he was pretty destitute. So he, uh, he, I think... At one stage, he says, you know, I'm going to give up on um, intelligence and I'm going to concentrate on journalism. So the 1920s and 30s, he, he seems to, you know, kept his head down and is working in both journalism and in the art world. And he's living in Chelsea. And I came across him, and this is the great benefit of having an unusual name, um, working at the YMCA, and later he's a, during World War Two he's a warden in an air raid shelter in Kensington Underground Station. However, there's a, a major mitty moment sometime in the 1930s when he reinvents himself. Um, he discards being called Percy Shuttlewood, and his new name was Malcolm Mackenzie, so, as you all know, in 1939, there was a sort of census, um, the 1939 register, where, you know, there was a list of who was living where, their dates of birth and their occupation. So he appears on the 1939 register as Malcolm Percy Mackenzie, 
with the name Shuttlewood in brackets, and his occupation is given as author, journalist, lecturer and propagandist. We all are familiar with the Arts Council of Great Britain, which was founded in 1940. Uh, however, in 1945, Percy um, sets up his own arts organisation, which is called the Empire Arts Council, and inevitably he appoints himself as its honorary secretary. He said it was going to be similar to the Rhodes Scholarship Foundation, but with a much wider brief. So you'd have exhibitions, you'd sponsor art for expert export, you'd guide foreign students round galleries and things. And instead of having, um, we're all familiar with air hostesses, he was going to have art hostesses going round galleries. What was his personal life like during the 1920s and 30s? He clearly was a sort of great charmer and must have had the gift of the gab. It's unfortunate I've not yet been able to find a photograph of him. However, in his file at Kew, I did find a description of him, which says he's five foot seven. He's of slight build. He's got a round face. His hair is brown, brushed over to conceal baldness. His complexion was sallow, and his manners were highly strung, nervous, manners and clothes distinctly presentable. So I think he must have been a bit of a man about town on on a limited budget. However, he clearly does sort of mix with the great and the good, because his Empire Arts Council, he approached all sorts of people to be the patrons Um, These included Anthony Eden, later our Prime Minister, who declined. But there was a fulsome response I came across from Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who accepted to be a patron. And his other contacts included J. Arthur Rank, Charles Forte, Earl Alexander of Tunis, and um, the son of John Buchan. Slightly bizarrely, he was also in touch with Winston Churchill, offering him tubes of paint. Uh, This was at a time when Churchill had quite a lot of time on his hands for painting, having lost the 1945 election. So he's a slightly shadowy figure, Percy, about London, but clearly um, mixing in interesting circles. So what happens to him finally? Well, he clearly did suffer quite badly from his war wounds and uh, in 1945 had a major stroke and was confined to a wheelchair and he applied for assistance from an officers association that um, provided funds and assistance to um, past officers and they applied to the war office um, for information about Percy who their response says that although Mr Shuttlewood seems to have had a somewhat checkered career after he relinquished his commission as far as we can trace Mr Shuttlewood's army service was satisfactory so I think he spent quite a lot of time in hospital and he then dies at the age of 64 in November 1956. And he does actually merit two obituaries, one in the Times and one in the Manchester Guardian. And um, I was just interested that the details, some of them are the truth and some of them have some slight mitty elements, a slight exaggeration or the names dropped. 
Um, he left £53.19 shillings and sixpence to his two unmarried sisters. Um, so a, a, an interesting, um, colourful life, but I, I would think ultimately a little bit sad. Finally, where can people learn more about the Welsh Walter Mitty? Well, I'm afraid you have to come to some of my talks at um, Western Front Association branches. They have monthly meetings on lots of different subjects. And um, my talk is just one of many that people can come and hear at um, these branch meetings. Marietta, thank you very much for your time. Not at all. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.